Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Uh, today, I'm delighted to talk to Imran Muller. You are most welcome again, sir. Thank you for having me back. It's great to have you back. So Imran, if you didn't know, is a student at Cambridge University, where he is now, uh, where he has studied the history of Islam in India. When the British withdrew from the Indian subcontinent in 1947, paving the way for the independence of the newly partitioned nations of India and Pakistan, the Muslims of the region had a choice. They could resettle in Pakistan, uh, where they would be among a Muslim majority, or remain in India, where they would live as a minority in a majority Hindu, but officially secular state. Tragically, Muslims have faced a surge in communal violence in recent years. A raft of new laws has reached into their daily lives to interfere with the religious garments they wear. We've seen recently in the news about the hijab, uh, sisters wearing hijab in colleges, the food they eat, where and how they worship, and even whom they can marry. And during Ramadan recently, uh, they saw their houses and shops bulldozed, their businesses boycotted, their religious gatherings heckled by Hindu nationalist mobs. Open calls for genocide against Muslims have become commonplace, as have violent clashes and lynchings. In fact, many members of India's ruling party have openly stoked hatred against Muslims. It's more, as some have just claimed, just silent complicity. Some have actually stoked hatred. And a recent open letter signed by more than 100 former civil servants accused the Indian government of being fully complicit in the subordination of the country's religious minorities, as well as in the undermining of the country's secular constitution. And I do want to stress here that Christians, too, have been victims of persecution in India, not just uh, Muslims. Now, Imran has kindly agreed to give us some sense of the history of the current situation by discussing the Hindu nationalist narrative of Indian history and how it is used to demonize Indian Muslims today. So you are most welcome again, Imran, and please share with us your thoughts today. So India has one of the largest Muslim populations in the world. There are over 200 million Muslims there, 
And the subcontinent has historically been home to one of the most extraordinary Islamic civilizations. So in its golden age, Indo-Islamic civilization was unrivaled, arguably, in terms of scholarly and literary output, in terms of uh, cultural output, architectural. It's a deeply rich inheritance. But in recent times, things haven't been going so well in India. Consider Kashmir, one of the most tragic situations in the world. Kashmir is India's Muslim majority state, although I think I think it's fair to say most Kashmiris don't want to be part of India. So that means that Kashmir has always been under military occupation. And in 2019, the government of the BJP, India's current ruling party, stripped Kashmir of its traditional autonomous status in an attempt to assimilate it into India. There was a gigantic crackdown and Kashmir's elected officials, including the pro-India ones, were imprisoned. So the aim here seems to be to open the way for Indians from the rest of the country to settle in Kashmir, which will change the region's demography. And the reason is that having a Muslim majority state is too much to bear for the government. Now, it might be useful here to take a brief look at the background of the Kashmir conflict in order to explain the situation. The Kashmiri tragedy is a result of the 1947 partition of India, although partition is actually a misleading word. India was made up of over 500 princely states, all under British rule ultimately. And so the creation of independent India was about incorporating these regions into a single gigantic nation state with a central democratic government. And at the time of partition, Kashmir had joined neither India nor Pakistan. The ruler, a Hindu Maharaja, seemed to want Kashmir to be independent. But then thousands of tribal invaders from Pakistan, not officially supported by the Pakistani government, marched into the north of Kashmir and pillaged their way across the country. And so the Maharaja responded by asking India for help. So the Indian army was deployed into Kashmir as a response to this. Now, at the time, it was unclear to anyone whether a majority of Kashmiris wanted to be part of India or Pakistan or whether they wanted to be independent or whether Kashmir would have to be split into two, part of it in Pakistan and part of it in India. Now, the prime minister of Kashmir at the time, Sheikh Abdullah, wanted Kashmir to join India. And he was a friend of the Indian prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, who himself was an ethnic Kashmiri. And Nehru wanted Kashmir to be part of India, but he felt that this should be done with the will of the Kashmiri people. So he promised a popular vote where the Kashmiris could decide their future. But because of various happenings, too complicated to go into here, that vote never happened and has not happened to this day, which is significant. Instead, part of the region remained under Pakistani control. The rest has been under heavy military Indian occupation with a special autonomous status until 2019. So India and Pakistan have fought wars over Kashmir. A lot of violence has occurred. There's been a pro-independence insurgency. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Urgency and a lot of human rights abuses by the army. And now it's a very grim situation. And that's just in Kashmir. Now, to turn to the rest of India, the large Muslim minority is increasingly besieged. In 2019, the government brought in laws that would potentially see millions of Indian Muslims stripped of their citizenship. So mass protests erupted against this, not just Muslims, but also Hindus, Sikhs and Christians protesting against these laws. And many non-BJP governed states announced that they wouldn't comply. So there's been a sort of pause, but the government seems to intend to progress with this very sinister plan when they can. Meanwhile, there's been increasing anti-Muslim violence in cities, uh, as, as you mentioned, Paul, widespread lynchings, and even the arrest of Muslims for bizarre reasons like allegedly supporting Pakistan in cricket. There have recently also been marches of Hindu nationalist mobs in Muslim neighbourhoods, uh, besieging mosques, and Muslims accused of retaliating have had their homes bulldozed with no due process. Meanwhile, all sorts of local leaders and government officials have been spreading anti-Muslim hatred. A few days ago, the national spokesperson for the BJP, the governing party, insulted Islam on live TV, and there have been calls for the mass murder of Muslims by various leaders of different militant groups across the country. Can I just pause on that very point? Because when I was doing um, um, some research into this in preparation for talking to you, and I must admit my ignorance was virtually total. Um, I'd heard that um, some people were claiming there were open calls for genocide uh, against Muslims, and this had become commonplace. And I thought, well, is this hyperbole? Is this exaggeration? Uh, because sometimes people use exaggerated language when they talk about violence against people. So, you know, I Googled it, and it's actually quite widely reported in the mainstream media. And um, the actual calls for genocide have occurred. For example, earlier this year, um, some very well-known um, Hindu nationalists um, supporting monks, Hindu monks, had openly called for the genocide of Muslims. Now, one of these guys was arrested, um, and um, I thought, that's interesting. I wonder what will happen. Will he be prosecuted? Will he go through? And then I learned in February, it, it reported in February, he'd actually been released on bail. A man who had called for the genocide of Muslims, an incredibly volatile situation, had been released on bail. And that was in February. I've not heard anything since. So these calls for genocide are recorded. They are, are fact. Uh, that This is not rhetoric. This is not exaggeration at all. And calls for genocide in India are really, really dangerous. And the, the UN people have spoken about this and media have spoken about this. The, the only channel I did a little bit of research, I thought I'll try Fox News, you know, this highly esteemed mainstream American broadcaster and see if they've been reporting on these calls for genocide and the open attacks on huge numbers of Muslims. And I couldn't find a single article, a single news report uh, in the last three years. When I look through the, the history of Fox News in the United States, they reported on anything. They did report on some Christians uh, who had been uh, persecuted uh, by Hindus. Um, so you, you clearly see where Fox News loyalty lies. It lies with Christians. They ignored the Muslim um, persecutions 
completely in their news reporting. And they boast how objective and fair they are, but they're very, very selective, I have discovered, in the reporting of Indian politics and the persecution of Muslims. And I take no joy in reporting that. That's just what I found. If someone can show me Fox News reporting on the persecution of Muslims in India, I'll be grateful. But I've not found a single article. Uh, other mainstream media have reported on this. BBC, of course, and Guardian and, and, and other news outlets uh, reported on the cause for genocide against Muslims uh, and the, 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 uh, the shops being bulldozed and, you know, the businesses boycotted and, you know, the, the horrible campaign against uh, Muslim sisters wearing hijab, of course, and you mentioned Kashmir. And this has been quite widely reported. This is not a, a kind of thing that happens in a remote corner. This is known, but um, it's not something the West uh, politically, I can only speak, you know, of my experience of Boris Johnson, my beloved prime minister in his recent visit, it doesn't seem to be concerned about it at all, from what I can tell in the reported media anyway. But sorry to interrupt you, that was just my penny's worth. I think you're completely right uh, in everything you say. And yeah, the situation is escalating so that, you know, the BJP government has prided itself on being in charge of the situation. So their perspective has been that we can spread anti-Muslim sentiment for our benefit, then we can rein it in when we want, so we're always in control. But from the government's perspective, now it's looking like there's a chance that they might lose control because the anti-Muslim politics that they've been spreading might get out of hand, spread by local rabble-rousers calling for violence, and it might be, the risk is now there, that a situation might erupt um, in certain places where the government can't restore order and anarchy breaks out. So this isn't a sustainable political strategy for the government. And there are rational incentives for them to rein in their anti-Muslim rhetoric because of that. But the problem is they seem unlikely to do so, uh, partially because it wins them votes. So they have an incentive to carry on with, him, with it, but also because many in the government are actually deeply ideologically committed to this project of subjugating Indian Muslims and transforming India into what it has never been, a unified Hindu state. Mm-hmm. So what about this, this uh, organisation I'm hearing about, the RSS, this paramilitary organisation? Um, apparently, they, they, historically, they were involved in the assassination of Gandhi, of all, of all things. Um, I, I, I've heard it said they effectively empower today in India. Is, is this true? And how dangerous is this for Muslims? Yeah. So before explaining what the RSS is, I think it's important to give some context. Uh, what was the idea of post-independence India and how did the RSS's uh, conception of the nation differ from this? So India, of course, is not it's not really a country like most countries are. It's a continent. It has immense regional, linguistic, ethnic, caste, religious diversity. And so the project of the nation state of India after the British left was to create a nationalism that could somehow incorporate all of this diversity. And arguably, it never really worked fully, but it did succeed beyond what anyone expected in 1947. So the idea of the first government of India was that you could be both a Gujarati, an Indian, or a Keralan, an Indian, you could be a Hindu, an Indian, or a Muslim, an Indian, and you could speak Hindi or no 
Hindi and still be as Indian as anyone else. And mm-hmm. central to this idea of India was secularism, although the word wasn't used at first. But when Indians talk of secularism, they don't really mean secularism as it's understood in Europe, which is about the removal of religion from the public space. Like Instead, in France, because you've spoken very eloquently about the situation in France, where there really is a purge of any public uh, exactly. displays of religion. And that's not what is meant by secularism in India, you're telling us. No, exactly. Indian secularism, a better word for it is pluralism. It means multi-religiousness. So it's the idea that all religions should be allowed and not just allowed, but encouraged to flourish. It was designed as this very complicated mixture of a very modern, foreign, European, liberal idea with an Indian tradition of tolerance. So they brought the two together. And the original proponents of Indian secularism evoked the historical examples of the ancient Buddhist emperor Ashoka, famously very tolerant, and the Muslim emperor of the Mughal Empire, Akbar. Now, this secularism, which was envisioned in this very complicated way, has never really manifested in practice. There have always been outbreaks of violence against minorities and not just Muslims. Indian Muslims have been generally poorer and less well-educated on average than the population at large. But there has also been a success story. So three of India's 14 presidents and four of its vice presidents have been Muslims. Many other ministers have been Muslims over the years. Popular film stars have also been Muslim. It used to be said that if you wanted to be successful in the Bollywood industry, you'd change your surname to Khan, uh, a Muslim surname. Um, And perhaps the greatest articulation of Indian pluralism was in a 1940 speech delivered by Maulana Abul Kalam Azad, who was an, in, he was an Indian Islamic scholar. He was a close friend of Mahatma Gandhi, a leader of the freedom struggle against the British. And for many years, he was a president of the Congress party, which advocated independence, and he firmly opposed partition. So his words in this speech in 1940, I think, are worth quoting extensively. He declared that I am proud of being an Indian. I am indispensable to this noble edifice. And without me, this splendid structure of India is incomplete. He's speaking here as an Indian Muslim. And he said, I am an essential element which has gone to build India. I can never surrender this claim. He then went on to say of Hindus and Muslims that these thousand years of our joint life has molded us into a common nationality. This cannot be done artificially. Nature does her fashioning through her hidden processes in the course of centuries. We have become an Indian nation, united and indivisible. No fantasy or artificial scheming to separate and divide can break this unity. We must accept the logic of fact in history. So this idea of what it means to be Indian, articulated by Molana Azad, is the opposite of what is believed by the RSS and the current government, the BJP. Their ideology is what we call Hindutva. It's often referred to as Hindu nationalism, Mm. not to be conflated with Hinduism, which is an ancient and diverse religious tradition. And the RSS believe that India is essentially a Hindu nation. They define Hindu as someone whose ancestry is in India and whose religion started in India. So Christians and Muslims whose religions didn't start in India are viewed as foreign and unable to be truly Indian. They're to be subjugated, not tolerated. And the BJP wants to fashion a Hindu majority in support of their idea. But this is proving difficult because Hindus across the country are extremely diverse. They're of different castes. They're in different 
different regions, and many Hindus oppose the BJP and are against the Hindutva ideology, which is why we shouldn't claim that this is a Hindu-Muslim problem. In fact, many Indian states, particularly in the South, such as Kerala, have consistently voted against BJP. But the Hindutva movement, historically driven by the RSS, aims to homogenize India, meaning it wants to stamp out its diversity. And their rallying cry is Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan. Now, ironically, all three words of those are, are Persian, but they want to assert <laughs> one language, Hindi, and one interpretation of Hinduism. The famous writer um, Arundhati Roy has actually argued, I think quite well, that this project to turn India into a Hindu state actually threatens to destroy India because India is a tenuous and fragile country binding together vast diversity. If it denies that internal diversity, India as an idea is untenable. It doesn't work. So the country will either break up or ultimately reject the Hindutva project. Now, you spoke a bit about the history of the RSS mm. and its uh, links to fascism. Uh, the RSS, by the way, stands for Rustria Swayamsevak Sung, uh, which is quite a mouthful. It's a powerful paramilitary organization. So it's not just a political organization. It's paramilitary, founded in the early 20th century to promote the Hindutva ideology. And it was actually inspired by European fascist movements. So a leading RSS ideologue, Goldwalker, he admired Hitler and the Nazis in the 1930s, and he compared the Muslims of India to the Jews of Germany. And Gandhi, as you mentioned, was assassinated by a former member of the RSS, essentially for being too pro-Muslim. So today, many in the BJP government are RSS members, including the Prime Minister of India, uh, and the RSS is becoming. And, sorry, and the, sorry, could you just tell us the name of the person? Sorry, the name of the the gentleman who is the Prime Minister of India. We've not mentioned his name. So Narendra Modi. Narendra Modi. He's a member uh, of the RSS. Oh, he's a member. It's interesting. RSS by coincidence in the English language, uh, S. There's an SS in RSS. Of course, SS is the. Yeah. The name of uh, um, the the German um, n- uh, Nazi extermination group um, in, in Nazi Germany. Well, of course, that's not what it means in in uh, in the original language, though. Of course, um, well, that, that's extremely uh, disturbing that they are, uh, as, as you're saying, effectively in power um, in India. But can we just address some of the claims that are are, are made? Um, about Islam in, in India's history, the claim, for example, that Muslims were foreign invaders. Um, th- this, is, this claim is sometimes made. How would you respond to that claim? So this is a very important question. The fabrication of history is central to the Hindutva project. Uh, Hindu nationalists justify the oppression of Muslims today as being revenge for crimes committed by Muslims historically. So in 1992, in Ayodhya, in Uttar Pradesh, in North India, the famous Babri Masjid, which was a mosque built in the 16th century, was destroyed, literally torn down by a Hindutva mob because of the claim, with no historical evidence, that it was built after the destruction of a Hindu temple. And today, a temple stands in its place. Uh, city and street names are being actually renamed because they have Muslim names to try and erase 
traces of uh, the Muslim past. And there are now even widespread claims, absolutely fantastical, that the Taj Mahal, which was built by the Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan, was originally a temple. So in calling for violence against Muslims, Hindutva leaders today talk about the Islamic oppression of Hindus in the past. Now, the irony here is that the Hindutva narrative of history was invented not by Indians, but by British historians during the colonial period to justify colonial rule. So British historians in the 19th century, they characterized India as fundamentally Hindu, its ancient Hindu heritage assaulted by a foreign Islamic oppression in the medieval age. Uh, Thomas Macaulay famously argued as much, and the historian, liberal historian James Mill, he divided Indian history neatly into three periods, Hindu, Muslim, and British. So in this version of history, which is today a popular narrative in India, Muslim rulers, particularly those of the Mughal Empire, which was the uh, biggest Muslim ruled polity, appear as extravagant, temple-destroying, violent fanatics persecuting Hindus. Now, the British painted this image to justify their own rule as bringing enlightenment and justice to India. But this idea... Uh, first come up with by James Mill, that Indian history was first Hindu, then taken over by Islam, was used in the 20th century by lots of people, including um, anti-colonials, including by people calling for Pakistan. So Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the father of Pakistan, argued that Hindus and Muslims were two separate nations and civilizations. He was building on this colonialist reading of history as being separated into Hindu and Muslim periods. And the Hindutva movement, led by the RSS, used it to argue that Muslims were not only violent oppressors, but completely foreign to India. Mm, oh dear. Now, there, there is another um, claim that's been made um, about forced conversion uh, to Islam. I mean, was there any systematic forced conversion of people, Hindus, others, to Islam in Indian history? Well, there were individual instances of forced conversion, but these were very limited. There was no systematic forced conversion. This isn't a matter of opinion or interpretation. It is a fact. There was no systematic forced conversion, contrary to popular claims made by Hindutva ideologues. So, for example, Mughal Empire knew no policy of forced conversion. And in Eastern Bengal in the 17th century, state officials were actually punished for promoting Islam among non-Muslims. There's actually, you know, we have sources which show that one officer had his position stripped from him for converting the son of a Bengali chief to Islam. The empire wanted tax-paying Hindu subjects uh, who were contented under Mughal rule. They didn't want subjects who felt marginalized by Muslim chauvinism because they thought that would threaten the stability of the social order. And interestingly, uh, most conversions to Islam actually happened in the peripheries of the empire. So places where imperial authority wasn't particularly strong, rather than, as we might expect, at the heart of the empire. So the Hindutva narrative about forced conversion is completely false. Okay, can I just check? You're studying, you've studied this at Cambridge University. Uh, in terms of the scholars that, who are teaching you, the professors and the academics that who are researching in this area, what do they think? Is this something that, uh, that they would agree with that assessment or is it something at odds with what you've just said? There is no uh, historiographical debate. There is no debate among serious historians about this. The debate here is not a debate. It's not like, say, the British Empire in Britain where there is a live debate between different 
historians about interpretations of history was the British Empire more bad than good uh, is very different to that. This is really uh, a battle between historians on the one hand and um, ideologues, demagogues, um, painting fake images of history on the other. So it's about narrative and fabrication and false memory versus actual history. Now, that isn't to say that there isn't significant disagreement among historians about different aspects of Mughal rule and Muslims in India, particularly about different emperors. There's a lot of disagreement and debate, but there is no debate about the fact of um, that forced conversion was ne never a systematic policy. There's no debate about temple destruction. Uh, the Hindutva nationalists, they claim that tens of thousands of temples were destroyed by Muslims over the years. Um, in reality, Richard Eaton, uh, a very distinguished historian, he did the research, he found evidence of 80 temples destroyed, not 80,000, 80. And in reality, there are probably more that there, there's not evidence for, but it's not going to be, uh, you know, as high as a, a thousand. And the question then is, uh, why were these temples destroyed? Because actually, we have significant evidence that Hindu rulers were also destroying temples. So why would Hindu rulers be destroying temples? Well, the answer is, is that temples weren't destroyed out of uh, religious bigotry. Uh, Muslim rulers destroyed temples that had political significance uh, to their enemies. So they were patronized by enemy rulers. Hindu rulers did the same. If you conquered an area, it's the, the horrible business of war. If you conquered an area, you would destroy or damage or loot a temple uh, that had political significance uh, as a show of really political authority uh, and political opposition. That was the real story of temple destruction. Right. So it's it, it, as always, these things are much more complex and nuanced and, and sometimes surprising in, in, in their context than, than the popular slogans and the binary worldview of us and them. It could be more complicated than that. Um, so the idea that the Hindu rule is destroying Hindu temples, you know, well, why would they do that? Well, you, you've explained the historical context for that. So that, that's a fascinating insight. But what about the Mughal Empire's treatment of Hindus? So you have a Muslim empire. How did they I mean, touched on this lightly, but what, what, what did they oppress the Hindus? Did they force them to convert? Well, what was their treatment generally of the Hindu population they ruled over? So the Mughal Empire is um, initially it's uh, founded by Central Asians um, who are Persianized in their culture. They invade India under the Emperor Babur, invade uh, Delhi and uh, vanquish the Delhi Sultanate, which was the Muslim uh, state that existed beforehand. Um, and so at this point, the Mughals are foreign, but very quickly um, over the generations, they indigenize, so they become Indian. In fact, every Mughal emperor, apart from the first, had an Indian mother. And they reflected this attempt to indigenize and not seem foreign in their governance. So in Gujarat, for example, the Mughals recruited scribal Brahmins, um, high caste Hindus, as officers. They recruited them and local gentry and merchants who were Hindus were endowed with royal robes and turbans and they were given jobs administering revenue collection. So the Mughal Empire had this kind of localism uh, where they would 
sort of um, involve local populations in the governance of their regions. And this allowed the empire to accommodate all this diversity while still maintaining its coherence. Mm -hmm. Now, religious difference was seen as a fact of life. It was to be embraced. And the Mughals established a legal pluralism. So the Sharia, uh, which is Islamic law, of course, functioned as common law. But cases involving non-Muslims were usually decided by councils based on local custom. Uh, but many Hindus, particularly women, frequented Islamic courts. Uh, and Islamic courts didn't drew it didn't draw any of the boundaries around ethnic or religious communities that later became a feature of British rule. And a lot of Mughal expansion in the north uh, occurred through the incorporation of territories governed by the Hindu Rajput caste into the imperial fold, regularly by conquest, but often by mutual consent. Uh, and of course, in battle, the Mughals were capable of terrible savagery. And so if you look at sort of chronicles from battles, you'll get a very misleading image of Mughal rule. So when the Emperor Akbar captured the Rajput fort of uh, Chittor in 1568, he boasted as blood flowed and heads rolled of his victorious jihad and of establishing Islam there. But in reality, defeated rulers were usually forgiven and brought into the empire. And the Rajput rulers of the Mughal Imperium enjoyed a lot of autonomy and independence. So they certainly weren't expected to become Muslims. The Mughal court itself was actually influenced by Rajput culture after the Emperor Akbar began marrying the daughters of Rajput chiefs. So as the Mughals indigenized and as Persianate and Indic mm -hmm. high cultures fused with each other, the Mughals recognized the importance of making their rule explicitly accommodating of the non-Muslim majority. And in 1563, Akbar, he scrapped the pilgrimage tax on non-Muslim institutions. The following year, he formally abolished the jizya, uh, the poll tax on adult non-Muslim males, declaring legal equality for religious groups. Now, a lot, of a lot was made by this by 20th century historians that Akbar abolished the jizya. But in reality, it was just a symbolic thing because earlier Muslim rulers in India had rarely actually levied the jizya. But Akbar went even further. He banned the killing of cows and peacocks to please um, his Hindu subjects. He actually took part in Hindu festivals and he, pat he patronized, sorry, he patronized a lot of temples. So he funded temples. He declared that no man shall be interfered with on account of his religion and anyone should be free to go over to any religion which pleases him. Well, that's, that's, so that, that's the truth. That's the truth. Just, just, to, just to clarify, just something I'm interested in. Um, was the was the empire Hanafi in, in its madhab, in, in its outlook? And the, the Hanafis are, are, are well known. The, in the Quran, it talks about the people of the book uh, and, and yep. uh, that they are to be afforded every right to practice their faith. So Christians can drink wine. They, they, they can... Uh, and rule and have their own laws of inheritance and divorce and so on, and Jews uh, as well. Um, and, and obviously Christians can eat pork and so on. But this in the Hanafi Madhab, uh, which is one of the four schools of um, Islamic law, Islamic jurisprudence, perhaps the main or the most popular one uh, in the last several centuries, um, my understanding is that the definition of people of the book was extended to include Hindus, uh, actually, who, who originally, of course, were not conceived of as being part of the Hindu, but they, they were understood to be uh, uh, treated in that way, which meant that they, under Sharia, their, their rights to practice their faith were guaranteed by law, 
by Islamic law. Um, and so th- 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 this is quite, quite significant. But you saying, actually, they went a lot further than that uh, in terms of this particular ruler, you know, building Hindu temples and n- no longer imposing jizya uh, uh, on their subjects. But nevertheless, it is interesting to know that the, the official Hanafi madhab uh, required that uh, that Hindus, as people of the book, were allowed to practice their faith unmolested. So there's no no question of forced conversions. It would have been illegal, contrary to the teaching of Islamic law, for that to have happened anyway. Yeah, and um, and by the way, this is completely right. And uh, the Mughal Empire, by the way, was the capital of Hanafi scholarship at oh. the time. So Ottoman jurists would commonly read works written by Islamic scholars in the Mughal Empire, which itself became a hub for uh, scholars from all over the Muslim world, who would they would go to Mughal India, essentially to make it big, because uh, that was sort of the place where rulers were pouring money into religious uh, educational institutions. So this was a capital of the, the Hanafi Madhub. Mm, fascinating. I'm, I just, I'm, I'm dying to ask, I'll be touching this very briefly, about... Um, the British government's response to recent uh, events in in India. Um, We've had a conservative government in power for some years now in the UK. Um, But what has there been response to this resurgent Hindu nationalism and its um, seeming encouragement of of, um, a kind of ethno-nationalist agenda uh, and the the attacks on on Muslims, which you've narrated? Um, has the government been outspoken in its condemnation of this? Because obviously the government is very condemnatory when it comes to human rights abuses, say, in Russia or in Afghanistan or in uh, Iran, of course. So have they been similarly outspoken in their condemnation of uh, these uh, anti-Muslim persecution in India today? I would say that there's been very little um, by way of a response. When Boris Johnson... Um, visited India, he didn't mention it. Uh, this was as homes were being bulldozed. Um, this, this, was, British- sorry, this was earlier this year. So just to clarify to, to people, because when this happened. So Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the UK, visited India this year in the last, was it a month ago or a couple of months ago? It was, it was around a month ago, yeah. I think. A month ago. Yeah. So I, I just want to clarify when this happened, because so we get the sense that whilst all this is going on, that what you narrated, that the uh, the persecutions and the call for genocide and so on in India, our, our prime minister goes to India and says nothing publicly. Is that right? He says nothing. Yeah, and the, the media as well didn't report on You didn't have from the British media any sense that this was happening at a time uh, in India where there was sort of mass anti-Muslim persecution. There was no mention of this, uh, essentially. So um, there's there's been very little in terms of a substantial response. I would say it's also um, there's not been enough focused on this issue from Muslims around the world, uh, and there needs to be much more focus on the plight of uh, Indian Muslims and Kashmiri Muslims and you know they need to be shown that they're not alone and that everyone else um, is is interested uh, in their situation and cares for their struggle uh, so that sort of that solidarity really is necessary and a lot more of it I think will be needed. So just to clarify two, two points here that I don't quite understand why do you think the British government has been so relatively mute in its public criticism of clear 
I mean, th- these abuses are, are, are not minor. They're very well reported. You know, you can Google this. And I was shocked to see how widespread it is, how widespread the reporting of this is in, ma- in many, apart from Fox News, of course, which apparently there is no issues whatsoever. But well, apart from the Christians being persecuted, of course. So as a first question is, why do you think Boris Johnson and the, Her Majesty's government are not publicly saying anything? And secondly, and I, I know the answer to this question, but I want you to kind of explain to us. Why should British Muslims and other, say, American Muslims, and why should they be so concerned about what happens to Muslims in occupied Kashmir in India? Now, I know the answer, but can you just explain the religious basis of the answer? Because it's not just we care about human beings who are suffering, but there's particularly Islamic reason, isn't there? Why what you're saying is a reasonable point. So those are my two questions. But one about HMG, Her Majesty's Government, the second one about Muslims uh, caring about their brothers and sisters in India. Yeah, all, all Muslims are, are part of the same community, the same ummah. Um, and that means that if Muslims are suffering somewhere, it should really affect Muslims everywhere. And it, Muslims should always be concerned in and speak out about and want to help Muslims wherever they're facing difficulty around the world in whatever country. So that includes in China, where the Uyghur Muslims um, are facing a genocide at the hands of the Chinese state. A tragic situation um, and I suppose that would uh, that sort of leads me on to the first part of your question which is about the British government because of course uh, the British government has been very vocal in criticizing uh, China for uh, the persecution of the Uyghur Muslims and rightly so and arguably it hasn't gone far enough but the reason is is that the geopolitical situation uh, means that it's convenient to Uh, target China for its very real human rights abuses, whereas the geopolitical situation with India doesn't make this convenient because for economic reasons, economic ties with India are important and they don't want to annoy the Indian government. So these, you know, statements on human rights by political leaders, this isn't unique to the British government in general. Uh, with few exceptions, statements on human rights by political leaders are based on uh, geopolitical economic concerns, not on morality. But for us ordinary people, uh, we should sort of be deeply concerned with okay. what's going on. In okay. well, another Western country, the United States of America, is well known, of course, for its upholding of human rights and dignity and freedom around the world. I'm trying to say that with a straight face. No, I, I just said that. So you would expect that they would have also spoken out very publicly and insistently and constantly on this subject of the persecution of Muslims in India. Has that been so? It's the same case with um, as with the British government. Uh, it's not particularly convenient from a geopolitical perspective. Uh, and I think if you if you look at when the president met with uh, the Indian government delegation you'll see that there was sort of no no mention of this um wow there was some more coverage of it in the american press i think than than in the british press but still there was nothing uh, in way of a substantial response and this isn't to say yeah ele- elected officials in america have sort of raised an alarm about it and spoken about it uh, but that's not the same as any kind of you know substantial response and uh, an attempt to sort of uh, actually sanction India and say that you really need to sort this problem right. out. There's there's really been none of that. 
I think. And it's I don't think similar. it's... So the, the American government, the State Department has spoken out repeatedly against human rights abuses in China. And of course, Taiwan is back on the agenda and the threats to China uh, independence. But you're saying the, uh, a similar response, principled human rights response is not being forthcoming from uh, the US administration when it comes to uh, the, these these terrible crimes in India. So, but and, and you say, I mean, it's not being cynical. When you talk about geo, geopolitics and geopolitical reasons, you're not being cynical. You're just being, this is real politique. This is what actually happens. But the rhetoric we get from uh, President Biden and Boris Johnson and uh, Macron in France and so on is very much about rights and freedoms and dignity and all that, constantly, constantly being told and lecturing other nations about this. But you're saying the reality is that it's very selective and it's uh, tailored to particular economic and geopolitical interests. And it's not if something is to be just, it's got to be across the board and even handed. It can't be selective. It can't be partisan. It can't be um, bias. Or, 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 or it, it, but it's not like that. You're saying it is very selective based on economic and geopolitical factors. Yeah, exactly. You summed it up very well. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, we don't disagree on that. And that, that, that's, that's the, the, the real world. And of course, many in the West perhaps are not aware of this. Uh, um, okay. Well, but that might, I mean, we could go on. There were other questions about this, the Tipu Sultan, um, once considered an anti-colonial hero. He's now condemned as a, a Muslim fanatic um, who attacked Hindus. And uh, 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 is, is it the case the opposite is the truth on that particular example? That that song, yeah. Well, well, really, it's just that it, it's complicated. Uh, Tipu Sultan was really nice to his Hindu subjects, he was really popular to them. But in war, he destroyed Hindu temples at home, he uh patronized Hindu temples. So, again, the Hindutva narrative uh, everywhere is just uh, it's, it's completely false. It paints a false image of foreign Islamic invaders uh, oppressing Hindus, but that was not the world experienced, that was not how Hindus at the time experience things and what tells us this is hindu sources which uh, we look at uh not not islamic sources but the hindu sources they show that that was not how things were experienced the emperor Aurangzeb uh did uh, sort of marginalized Hindus with some of his religious policies, but there's no evidence that he caused a large-scale religious crisis, and actually he maintained good relations with uh, other Hindu polities. He introduced, he brought in unprecedented numbers of Hindus into his administration, uh, as well as some of the things he did to alienate them, and that that's just one ruler. So, History is complicated, and this isn't about defending one ruler or another or holding up people as heroes or romanticizing history. It's just about saying that the Hindutva narrative um, of Islamic oppression, and so Indian Muslims have to be persecuted in return today, is completely false. And it's not only false, but it's extremely dangerous. But it just strikes me, I mean, even if these events had happened, as is alleged, yeah. and you say the evidence is the contrary, that th these events happened centuries ago, you know, before the lifetime of anyone living today. There's not a single Muslim in India who's in any way personally responsible for any of this. And yet this narrative is resurfacing uh, or not resurfacing. You're saying it's been manufactured um, about events from many centuries ago. There's a, a storm and lightning going on outside here. Um, and that just seems, you know, very unfair anyway, that, that Muslims today, despite the rights and wrongs and the fabrications, have been held personally responsible and being attacked on the basis of events that happened 
uh, a long, long time ago. J- just that whole sense, there's no justice in that, surely. No, I, I think that's completely true. Um, and actually, I, there's an argument that, you know, sort of telling the truth about history isn't going to change sort of the, what the Hindutva movement does. But I do think it is important to really establish why uh, Islam uh, is not some kind of foreign religion and Indian Muslims are not foreigners. They are Indian. Uh, because this is sort of saying that Indian Muslims are uh, foreign on the basis of their history is really driving a lot of the conflict and persecution today. So actually refuting that narrative is very important. What actually emerged in India was uh, a composite culture uh, where there was a complex um, dialogue uh, between different traditions. There were no firm lines between communities. In fact, the historian Audrey Trushk argues, I think very convincingly, that Hindu-Muslim conflict on a large scale did not emerge until the colonial period. So for most of the history of Muslims in India, and it's a very long history, there hasn't been that kind of conflict. It wasn't experienced as Islamic um, oppression. And that means that Muslims are as Indian as Hindus and Sikhs and Christians. Uh, And that really needs to be said very loudly and very firmly, and they shouldn't have to prove their loyalty to India. Mm. Extraordinary. Well, uh, perhaps we will conclude there, actually. Uh, There's so much there to ponder on and be very anxious about. And uh, I, for one, will certainly uh, pay a lot more close attention to the news in uh, India uh, that I have uh, done up till till now, and uh, and uh, I hope viewers have benefited uh, as much as I have from Imran Muller's um, uh, knowledge and expertise, uh, which he's gained uh, from studying at Cambridge University, where you're still studying now, of course, uh, in the middle of your uh, studies. So, just thank you very much, uh, Imran, for your time uh, and your knowledge and and your facility with language. You've explained things so clearly, I think. And, and understandably for even someone like me who knows very little. So I, I can understand what you're saying. So thank you very much, uh, Imran, for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having me on to discuss this important topic. It's great for, that your channel with such a uh, large audience is discussing this. Thank you. Take care. Until next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.